Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, April 10th, 2021. Right now, it is Wednesday morning once again, and we have our friend Truthfids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 34 of our series. Last week, we discussed the racial aspects of the message in 2 Peter chapter 2, where it is clear in the context of his remarks that the apostle was describing a different race of people with a different origin than the Israelite Christians to whom his epistle was addressed. In that chapter, the apostle had warned of men who could not have been of Israel, and he related them to fallen angels and professed that they were born as natural irrational animals into destruction and corruption, and that they were cursed children, among other things which indicated that he was speaking of a different race of men and not merely a collection of wicked or sinful individuals. Furthermore, on that same basis, they evidently never had any opportunity to repent and join the body of Christ, as Peter attested that their fate is to be consigned to the mist of darkness forever, and that their judgment was from of old, meaning that they were judged, even though they were living in Peter's time, that their judgment was from ancient times. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're on to Jude, and uh, hopefully with all these clear-ups on the mistranslations and what the apostles are truly saying, we can see their general attitude, and modern Christians uh, generally look up to the apostles as kind of like the ideal Christians, in many ways, but they misunderstand how, you know, quote unquote racist they were, you know, uh, it's a modern term we would use. And uh, you, as you actually understand what they're saying, it becomes very clear that they were, that they didn't even see the people around us as, you know, the, the black people or the Arabs or this or, you know, the Chinese. They just saw them as animals, as beasts, as, as devils. And, and that's the exact attitude we should have today, right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely, it's the exact attitude we should have today. It, if the message is only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and Peter is speaking of these, this other race, or of outsiders come into the body of Christ as... Basically, he's describing them as intruders, and he's saying that they are spots in your feast of charity. In, in a flock of white sheep, what color are spots? <laughs> spots in blemishes. That They're not white. I, I mean, that's the bottom line. These people are not part of the covenants. They are not part of the promises to the to the fathers, if they had no part in the promises to the fathers, because they are clearly not the seed of the fathers, then they must be those spots 
in our feast of charity. That's the only explanation. That's the only valid explanation. And Peter said that they were born, as we pointed out two weeks ago, they were born as natural Bruce beasts, brute beasts, where the King James Version has made. But of people, that word means born. Geneo. It's the same word, basically the same root as Geneo, which is a race, a stock, or a family. They watered down all that language and really obscured, obfuscated its meaning. It's incredible. So they, they opened the door by obfuscating, by diluting the meaning of words. They opened the door for all sorts of heresies, for all sorts of subjective interpretations and opinions. Yeah, and when you realize it's born that they didn't choose or it's not the actions that they did in this life, it was already, you know, it was just destiny. They were born that way. They, they'll never change. Well, well right. And, and I wanted to really take this, this epistle of Jude and mesh it with a lot of things that the apostle John had said in his epistles about the Antichrist. And... We will touch on that here, but not to the degree that I had originally hoped. I, I just, I, I'm not saying that I slacked in preparation for this, but this is so long a presentation now just on Jude, and I really wanted to get it into um, one week instead of dragging it out for, for many, like we, we were compelled to do with some of the mistranslations in Paul, right? So, so it would have been hard to really interleave John to the degree that I would have liked. But when I, when we discussed John and, and the Antichrist, his use of Antichrist and how he applied that term, we will hearken back to 2 Peter chapter 2 and to Jude and to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is in the weeks to come. So it, it's they're all they all had the same message, even the Apostle John, when he spoke about where the King James Version has many antichrists have come into the world. And I think that we're going to cite that passage later on that this evening. We see that same what well, we see a form of the same word, geneo which Ganeo, referring to humans, means to be born. And there's another word, ginomahi. And ginomahi can be to come, to be, or to become in certain contexts, but it depends upon the subject that's being or becoming. Liddell and Scott define ginomahi in a radical sense. Now, radical in grammar refers to the most basic meaning of a term. It's not like it's used in politics of an extremist or somebody that might have a subversive agenda. That's how it's used colloquially in modern politi- political and social settings, right? Radical is a, a, has a negative connotation. Well, in grammar, it simply refers to the most basic meaning of a, of a word. So 
in the radical sense, and and that's the most basic sense, Liddell and Scott say that ginomahi means to come into being. And it was used to people to describe their origin and their birth. So, where the Apostle John says, even now there are many antichrists in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Greek actually implies that even now many antichrists have been born, have come into being. And he's talking about these same people, and, and we will demonstrate that when we discuss John, but he's talking about these same people that Paul spoke about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he said that Satan was sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be God, and, and that Second Peter and Jude here are describing as intruders, as false brethren crept in unawares, as we will see in Jude. Even in the King James Version, you could pick that out. I hope that makes sense, and that's a digression, but it, it's at least a relevant one to the rest of this material we're about to present. That language being diluted has actually obscured the true message of Scripture in countless ways. So this is proof number 49 on our list today, and this is the racial message of Jude. I don't know if you have anything to add before we begin with my prepared remarks. Yeah, what we're going to see is in complete contrast with all the other apostles, right? Peter, James, and even John uh, a few decades later, right? They, they all have the same mindset, exactly. Well, well right, absolutely, absolutely do. It, this is, our, our assessments here will be in, in completely in context with the, the similar remarks of Peter and Paul and John, even though they all use different terms, different analogies, different ways to express themselves, they're basically saying the same thing. Now, now Jude and Peter really use all the same terms and analogies to express this concept between Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude. But Paul and John, they told the, basically the same, that they had the same narrative with very different terms. So it seems that that's possibly because Peter and Jude were a lot closer. Who knows? I, I can't account for that. John wrote his message um, at a very advanced age. He, he was when he wrote his epistles. So perhaps he, he simply purposely chose different expressions and different ways to explain this. And, and John is a lot more subtle, but he's still using the same language that antichrists are born, men here on earth. And, and we'll discuss that as we proceed. I think we hit on John actually on his first epistle on two occasions in this presentation today. But we'll go into depth on that in, in the weeks to come. So now we, sh we shall discuss the epistle of Jude from this perspective, because Jude not only corroborates Peter's words, but he also clarifies them in ways which make us all the more confident in our interpretation of both of these epistles. Evidently, Jude, a little background information, Jude was the brother of James the Elder. James the Younger, the lesser James in Scripture, was the brother of the Apostle John, 
the sons of Zebedee, right? James the Younger was murdered by Herod Agrippa I, as it's explained in Acts chapter 12, I believe. The elder James is the apostle James whom Paul sees later on as he returns to Jerusalem for the last time before his arrest. That's the elder James, the author of the epistle of James. He is actually, along with Jude, a half-brother of Christ. They were referred to together as the brethren of the Lord by Paul of Tarsus in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where they are mentioned along with Peter. They are mentioned together by name among the 12, the 12 apostles, in Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 6, and Acts chapter 1, as well as in the opening salutation of this epistle of Jude, where we read from the King James Version. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified, by God the Father, and preserved in Christ, and called, according to the King James, mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Here, as we present this, we're going to be following the King James Version so that we may also discuss its faults. Now, admittedly, much of what I say here this evening is based on my May 2012 commentary. It's nine years old already, so to me it seems ancient, that, that I had done on this epistle of Jude, which I had presented in a single podcast. However, here I'm also going to focus only on the racial aspects of the message of the apostle, while I'll attempt to clarify whatever I can and we will also relate it to the epistles of the other apostles, as we have discussed, where they made similar statements, but especially to 2 Peter chapter 2. The epistles of John, Peter, James, and Jude are not without their enemies. And some early and supposed Christians, I say supposed purposely, attempted to have them eliminated from canon. In chapter 6 of his Ecclesiastical History, the 4th century writer and advisor to Constantine the Great, who also served as his panjarist and eulogist, in, in other words, as his ass-kisser, he spoke of a work of Clement of Alexandria that in the work called Hippotyposis, to sum up the matter briefly, he gave us abridged accounts of all the canonical scriptures, not even omitting those that are disputed. I mean, the book of Jude and the other general epistles. That's a quote from the Ecclesiastical History of Eusebius, chapter 6. He's referring to these other disputed epistles, these other general epistles, and the book of Jude as being disputed. But as far as I know, and I've read the entire ecclesiastical history of Eusebius, but I haven't read any of his other writings, if indeed they ever survived. He had a chronology and things like that. 
Eusebius never explained why all of these epistles were disputed, and we would reject any such disputation. A host, you think this was when Converso Jews starting to creep in? I really do believe that. I really do believe that the in the formative years of the Roman Catholic Church, it was, and I have great reasons, numerous reasons for believing this, it was already being corrupted. It had already been in the process of being corrupted for several centuries, ever since apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence, and this replacement theology had taken its place. And um, Jude and the Apostles' epistles are especially dangerous to Jews, right? Because they mention fallen angels, and these men crept in unaware. Right. They really make you understand, when you actually study these epistles, um, especially Second Peter, Jude, and First and Second John, that there is another race of people present who do creep in among the children of Israel and Christians, because Christians, that the ancient children of Israel actually were Christians. They were Christians looking ahead to Christ, while Christians today are Christians looking back to Christ, right? But, well, who creep in among Christians who are not of the same race as Christians and who cause all sorts of trouble and divisions and introduce false doctrines and introduce sexual license and lasciviousness. Now, anybody who has his eyes open to society today over the last 500 years, but especially over the last 60 years, can understand that it is the Jew who has been at the spear point of every movement which undermines both white society and Christian society. If you want to think they're different, they're really not different. It's the Jews who have spearheaded the movement to take God out of all of our schools. It's the Jews who have been the leading pornographers and the leading advocates for racial diversity and immigration and every other concept that weakens and undermines white Christian civilization. It's the Jew that's been behind those things. And it's they're still the, trying to progress it further, right? They're trying to bring in pedophilia and, and legalize it all. You can see that in some countries, the, the first uh, cases of that, right? Absolutely. Pedophilia is coming down the road. Um, bestiality, all different perversions are coming down the road. And it's Jews who are spearheading them all. It's the Jews that spearheaded the feminist movement. Most of the leading feminists were Jews. All these things undermined the function of our white Christian society and are driving it into a state of decay. So who are these interlopers that come into the assemblies of God and, and, and with their false and heretical doctrines? If it isn't the Jew, 
And today, and, and this has been going on slowly for 100 years, but today it is really being, um, it, it is really blatantly and openly visible where these Jews that have crept into these denominational churches have actually taught Bible Belt Christians, denominational Christians, to worship Jews rather than Jesus. And, and they, they talk about how Jews are the chosen people, and, and God's going to convert all the Jews to Christ. And they basically, that they support Zionism, um, I stand with Israel bumper stickers, and they'll talk to you all day about Jews. You could slander and blaspheme Christ, and, and they're not really faced by that. But if you say anything bad about a Jew, to them, that's the greatest of all sins. The Jews have become the god of American Protestantism. They've actually replaced Christ with themselves in the minds of many mainstream American Protestants. You don't see bumper stickers on the back of pickup trucks in Tennessee and Virginia saying, I stand with Jesus. You see bumper stickers saying, I stand with Israel. Referring to the Jews as Israel, which of course is also absolutely wrong. It, it's absolutely not true. So, so Satan has created his one world religion. It's worship of the Jew and, and, and of the beast. How have we joined ourselves to the beast? That, that's another story for another time. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's another digression. But yes, the church was already being subverted by these bastards 17, 1800 years ago. But a host of earlier Christian writers, earlier than Eusebius, of course. Eusebius, he was at his heyday probably about 330 A.D., a host of earlier Christian writers, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Novation, and several others, had all cited the epistle of Jude, and all of them esteemed the epistle to be legitimate. Origen, who also far preceded Eusebius, in chapter 10 of his second commentary, his second book of the commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Origen wrote that Jude wrote a letter of a few lines, meaning his epistle was short, but filled with the healthful words of heavenly grace. In other words, Origen had a very positive assessment of everything we're about to explain in the epistle of Jude, because he was referring to this very epistle. So it is clear that while Eusebius and others who lived at a later time and during the early development of the universal Roman Catholic Church had doubted the veracity of Jude, nearly three centuries after it was written, the early Christian writers did not doubt it. They accepted it. So Eusebius's attitude towards Jude and the other Catholic or general epistles amounts to hearsay and slander. But we see the divisions creeping into the church and the attempts to get rid of these epistles, which all expose the Jew for what he is, a devil. They are nothing but devils. Every single Jew that has ever existed, according to scripture, 
is a devil. And today, white Christians worship devils. They are worshiping the devil. So we can proceed to the epistle if you have no comments. I was just going to say they did manage to get rid of the Book of Enoch at, by then, right? Yeah, they got rid of the Book of Enoch at a very early time. Um, oh, I thought it was with Constantine they managed to convince him. It, it seems to me that they were eradicating the Book of Enoch e even before that. I mean, there are copies of Enoch literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And according to Harvard professor and Roman Catholic priest John Strugnell, in modern times, the Jews have gotten rid of some of those. But there's enough information in the Dead Sea Scrolls that we can piece together and we can verify these, that these sentiments of the apostles by them and see what they were talking about. There's the Ethiopic version of Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I am going to quote here this evening, but I do not have a lot of esteem for it because it, ha it has suffered many um, corruptions, interpolations, and entire books that were written at a much later time have been added to it. So we have to be really careful with the Ethiopic one Enoch that, that was translated by either. Um, it was, I know of two translations, one by R.H. Charles and another by Lawrence. I think his name is Thomas Lawrence. So, so Enoch, the, Judah's quoting Enoch in, in Jude 14. He, he's making a direct quotation of Enoch. There are a lot of indirect in, in other words, where Enoch wasn't attributed, that there are a lot of indirect citations of Enoch in the epistles of all the apostles, and throughout, scattered throughout the epistles of the apostles in general. Let me put it that way. Um, Jude actually made, in Jude 14, a direct citation of Enoch and what he prophesied, what, which we can see right in um, 1 Enoch. The, the one Enoch that was preserved through the Ethiopic language. And, and I don't have a lot of confidence in it. There are many clear um, interpolations and conflicts with Scripture within one Enoch. But we, it, it would be a real blessing to have the Enoch that Jude had, which is the Enoch that I believe is represented in those fragments which do survive to us in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It seems to me that even though certain of the so-called church fathers, and I really have explicit references that we've collected, and I believe there's a podcast at Christogenia, which I did some years ago, titled Two Seed Line in the Early Church Fathers, or something along those lines. There are explicit references in the writings of Justin Martyr and Tertullian, and I think Clement of Alexandria, but I don't really remember that clearly, references to 
what we call two seed line. And they're without a doubt referencing things that were explained in the Enoch literature. But they are rather vague references. And from that period, the second century through the fourth century AD, I've never seen any manuscript of any part of Enoch. So I really think that the Jews were very successful at eliminating at least most of the copies of Enoch at an early time. And there must have been some remnants by the time of the Council of Nicaea, but you're right, it was not included in canon. And when it fell out of favor, which was seems to have been complete by the 4th century, that it had fallen out of favor, that was the end of it. That there were no surviving Greek copies that I've ever heard of or seen, or Latin or, or even Hebrew that I've heard of or seen. And in fact, the Enoch that um, is apparently missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls that John Strugnell was familiar with, that was in Aramaic. And he said that there was a complete Aramaic copy of Enoch at the Dead Sea Scrolls, yet all we have now are scattered fragments. And he complained that it was missing. And the Jews tried to ruin him for that. They really did punish him at the end of his career for saying that. Did, did he manage to read it? Before, like, obviously, he, hindsight, he didn't realize that it was going to go missing. But, but did he mention that he read it? Well, well he, he mentioned that he knew about it. I don't know if he read it or not. I don't remember exactly what he said about it. But I have read this in archaeology magazines and, and other sources. And Strugnall was a very, he was a young scholar who was on a um, international committee of nearly all Christian scholars from the 1950s and 60s who, who were working to translate, correlate, and, and collect and, and, and get into manuscripts all of the discoveries in the Judean desert, all of what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Strugnall was a Roman Catholic priest, and he was, um, a, he, he must have been an expert at, at Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic at, at Eastern languages in order to even attain the position that he had. But he was also a Harvard professor. So he was an educated man, even though he was a Roman Catholic, right? In spite of that, he was educated. And he had um, been on that committee, and in the 1967 Six Days War, when the Israelis got control of the West Bank, the Dead Sea Scrolls were being studied in a building, a facility that was actually financed by the Rockefellers on the West Bank. So they, on the West Bank, they were not under Israeli control. And it was mostly Christian scholars working on the scrolls, on, on deciphering, editing, um, compiling, and cataloging them. There's a lot of work when you find fragments of a scroll before you could ever even start to read it properly. So that the um, 1967 war came along, the Israelis got control of the West Bank, 
and they shut that facility down. And for 25 years, they only let certain Jewish scholars have access to the scrolls. And even Jews were writing books that complained about this, that they could no longer access the scrolls. One of those Jews was a Jew named Giza Vermes. So for 25 years until 1993, only select Jewish Jews, the Jews' chosen scholars, only select scholars, if they're scholars at all, right? Select deceivers, maybe, could have access to those Dead Sea Scrolls. And then they reopened them to, to a wider segment of, of scholars in 1993 so the outsiders could somehow, if, if they had credentials, right, get access and examine the scrolls. Well, well, most of the scrolls were photographed by that time anyway, but Strugnall was familiar with the scrolls, and he was one of the few scholars, because he was young enough, that was familiar with the scrolls before 1967 and was still around in 1993 and later, right? So... That, that's his statements, his remarks are based on direct experience. That's immaterial. But the, the fact is that we don't have access to a real copy or, or at least an, an old copy of Enoch any longer, except for the few fragments that are, that we do see or that we can see from the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So, yeah, they've done their best to suppress Enoch. That's the bottom line. <clears throat> okay, that's another long digression. In the opening verse of his epistle, Jude addresses it to those beloved by God the Father, and also to them that are sanctified by God, where the two descriptions obviously apply to these same people, his intended readers. In our own translation, we recognize that fact, and we very literally translate the Greek phrases to read, to those beloved by Father Yahweh, or by God the Father, even the chosen being preserved by Yahshua Christ. The phrase is a hendiatus, meaning that both phrases do refer to the same group. It's, it's a Greek grammatical construction, which is also similar to, at this level, to the Hebrew parallelism, where the same object, event, or, or individual, or whatever, is being described twice consecutively with different terms, but they all refer to the same object, right, or the same group or person. In this case, it's a group. So the passage may have been translated to those who are beloved by God the Father and who are the chosen being preserved by Yahshua Christ. Jude is referring to Christians as the chosen, not to Jews. Jews are devils, and he's going to basically explain that. So that translation isn't as literal, but it reflects Jude's intentions accurately. Only the children of Israel have all of those Old Testament promises of salvation, and therefore only the children of Israel can be the chosen being preserved by Yahshua Christ, as these things were all defined 
by God long in advance, but none of them were Jews. Some of them might have been Judeans, but none of them were Jews. In verse 3, Jude mentions to them the common salvation. But that does not mean that salvation is for every biped on the planet. Rather, according to the scriptures, salvation is a promise to the children of Israel sent into captivity, which Yahweh God had declared beforehand. So we read, for example, in Isaiah chapter 43, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. And this is important. Yet before the day was, I am he. Before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Or I think that should be who shall prevent it. So where Yahweh had said before the day was, he was informing the children of Israel that they must know that once Christ the Savior did come, that they should know it because he told them that he was coming. So we read in the words of Christ in John chapter 8, when you, he's speaking to his enemies, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he. And there, Christ was indicating that it was he who was fulfilling that promise to Israel made in Isaiah. These two verses should certainly be cross-referenced. For another example, in Isaiah chapter 45, we read, Verily thou art a God that hides thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, meaning the enemies that oppose him. They shall all go to confusion together that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. For thus saith the Lord that created the, he that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he that had established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, I, the Lord, speak in righteousness. I declare things that are right. Now, that's a long digression into Isaiah, but it's for a good reason. The language which we find in the first three verses of Jude helps to establish that he was indeed addressing the scattered children of Israel, just as Peter and James had also used language to indicate that same thing, although in different terms. Later, in the same verse, Jude refers to the faith once delivered to the saints, and that is a reference to the Old Testament saints, who are no different than those of the New Testament. They are the same children of Israel. It hasn't changed. That There was no change in, in the definition and meaning of the word saints from the Old Testament to the New Testament. 
We have already explained the meaning of the Greek word hagios in these presentations, as it refers to something which has been separated and dedicated to the services of God. The word for saints here is hagios, and the verb for sanctified in verse 1 is a perfect tense form of the same word. It's a verb form, hagiadzo, which refers to someone or something because Jude used it in the perfect tense, someone or something who had already been sanctified in the past. It's the perfect tense. It can only be referring to those same children of Israel who were sanctified to God by Abraham in the loins of his son Isaac. So for now it may suffice to read from Psalm 37. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The word for saint first appears in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where it is also defined, and it says, and he said, this is coming from Moses, from the song of Moses, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir under them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand went the fiery law for them. And, and that's all a description and this is often misinterpreted. That's all a description of the travels of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They are his ten thousands of saints. And that's from where the law came for them. Yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. They sat down at thy feet. They shall receive of thy words. This is the common salvation of which Jude had spoken, the Old Testament promises, and not anything novel or new. This is the faith once delivered to the saints. Christ is the faith once delivered to the saints, the Old Testament children of Israel. We have demonstrated many times throughout the New Testament, throughout our comments, that that has not changed. That focus has not changed. Peter writing to sojourners, James writing to the scattered tribes of Israel, scattered abroad, Paul, who, who was in, imprisoned in bonds for the hope of the 12, which was shared by the 12 tribes. And Paul professed that several times. That was their own. And the scope. enemies haven't changed either. That they used to be called Canaanites and now they're called Jews, right? Well, well and Edomites as well. That that's exactly right, and that's a good introduction to the next part of this discussion. Now, Jude, in Jude four, we read of men in the context of the Old Testament who could not have been of Israel, and therefore who must have been of a different race. So we'll read verse 4 from the King James Version, so nobody can accuse us of fiddling with the meanings. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old 
ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Israelite was condemned before from of old? What Israelite? Because we just read it in um, Psalm 37, for the Lord loves judgment and forsakes not his saints, they are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. So what saint, which one of those sanctified people, those people that were in the loins of Isaac, sanctified to God, who, who were dedicated to the services of God, whom God had chosen, I said, not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation, as we just saw in Isaiah chapter 45. How could they, how could any Israelite creep in unawares, who was before of old ordained to this condemnation? This has to be describing people of a different race. Outsiders creep in unawares. So this corresponds to what Peter had said about false prophets among the people of old who had privily brought in damnable heresies in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. The word lasciviousness may have been rendered as licentiousness. One does not have to deny Christ directly or explicitly in order to bring heresies into the church and deny Christ because a purposeful failure to obey his commandments is tantamount to a denial of him. They're not denying Christ with their lips. Christ himself said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Christ himself said, get away from me. I never knew you. After he said that, and after they said that they had been sacrificing and, and doing things in his name, he said, get away from me. I never knew you. So who were they that he never knew? If he said to the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth in Amos chapter three. Those people that he never knew must be these same people of old, men of old, who hear Judas explaining, crept in unawares. They have to be a different, distinct race of people other than the children of Israel, creeping into the churches unawares and perverting it and perverting its doctrines and subverting it with both false doctrines and licentiousness. And licentiousness is certainly a purposeful rejection of his commandments. So here in Jude, in verses 16 and 18, the apostle mentions their ungodly lusts. And all of that correlates to Peter's remarks concerning the lust of uncleanness, adultery, and covetous practices of the same men 
because he's speaking of the same man who crept in privily in verses sec in verses 10 and 14 of second peter chapter 2 it's all the same it all correlates it's all the same message it can all be aligned with the words of christ in the gospels concerning men that appeared to be righteous but he did not know so here Jude associates these false teachers with the godless men of old, who were of old ordained to this condemnation, just as Peter also did in 2 Peter chapter 2, where in the opening verses he said that for whom from of old their judgment is not idle, meaning it, that it will certainly be carried out or is being carried out, and their destruction does not sleep, meaning that Yahweh God is not going to forget to destroy these bastards, that he will indeed destroy them, that they will be destroyed. And this is one reason I am fully persuaded as that why, as long ago as the time of Eusebius, certain men wanted to get rid of these epistles. They just couldn't have this in their universal church. Likewise, Paul associates the deception of Christians with that serpent of old at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where he states, But I fear, lest in any way, as the serpent had thoroughly beguiled Eve in his villainy, your thoughts would be corrupted from that sincerity and purity which is with the anointed, or the Christ. It is not by chance that the apostles used these illustrations to convey these things. They didn't just use these words because they were cool. They were purposely evoking language from the Old Testament prophets, from the book of Genesis, and from Enoch, from the writings of Enoch, which we will see in, in Jude especially. And, and also we will realize upon that that Peter had also had Enoch for an inspiration. This isn't by chance, and everything the apostles say here are fully corroborated as literal truths in many other places in Scripture, in the, the epistles of Paul and the revelation of Christ and the gospel of Christ, throughout the prophets and throughout the books of Moses, even in the Psalms and, and the Proverbs. <laughs> Excuse me. So now Jude offers a warning of temporal destruction to those who would reject Christ and his teachings using another illustration from the Old Testament, where in verse 5 he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this. And that's important because that makes us realize that Judah's speaking of people who once knew this long ago. Their ancestors knew this. How that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. <clears throat> now saying the people, Judah was referring to Israel as speaking to those who once knew this. He was speaking to their descendants. The people are the same people of Deuteronomy 33.3, where it states, where it speaks of Yahweh God, and we read, yeah, he loved the people all his saints are in thy hand. 
The Greek word translated as afterward here is actually deuterus and is better and more literally translated as the second time. The second time he destroyed them that believed not. Which is even more significant in the interpretation of this. The first time the impious among the ancestors of the children of Israel were destroyed was in the days of Noah. And while Jude does not mention the flood of Noah explicitly here, Peter had in verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 2. And now in relation to that same event, to those who had precipitated it, those who had precipitated or had actually been the cause, the instigators of the flood of Noah. Jude says in verse 6, <clears throat> And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Where it says reserved in chains, everlasting chains under darkness, the Greek phrase, and I'm not going to read it here, but it's in the notes. The Greek phrase is better translated as kept under darkness in everlasting bindings. And this is where Peter had said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that the angels that sinned were delivered into chains of darkness. The angels that sinned were not necessarily chained in a dark pit, sitting in darkness in chains, but rather they were bound in chains of darkness. There's a huge significant difference there. They were bound in chains of darkness very plausibly as a result of their having been the very products of the fornication of their ancestors their corrupted genes, in other words, are what binds them in chains of darkness because they have no truth in them. As Christ had told them many times that they can't come to the truth because they have no truth in them, that they naturally hate the light for that very reason, that they couldn't believe him because they were not his sheep. And Peter said they're even ignorant of it. They don't even realize, right? Right. Christ told the Pharisees that rejected him that professing to see that they were blind. Even though they, because they professed to see, they were blind because they really didn't see at all. They couldn't see the truth. It's not possible for them. So later in this epistle, Jude cites the writings of Enoch. While we may have read passages from Enoch which correspond to statements he already made in the first five verses here, I purposely omitted them for the sake of brevity. But we will cite Enoch in relation to what Jude had written in this sixth verse. So from one Enoch, from one Enoch or first Enoch, chapter 12, we see that Enoch himself is addressed in a command, evidently in the prelude to the flood of Noah. And it says, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go, 
declare to the watchers of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, the angels who kept not their first estate, or in Peter's terminology, the angels who sinned. And it's not necessarily referring to angels with wings floating around the sky. That's not what this refers to. Declare to the watchers of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women, and have done as the children of earth do, and have taken unto themselves wives. You have wrought great destruction on the earth. That was what Enoch was to declare. You have wrought great destruction on the earth. There are many other portions of one Enoch which also offer relevant citations. We can't possibly cover them all here. As Paul of Tarsus Bill, had I just, warned... I just had a quick question. If Enoch was uh, dealing with the angels, then that shows that the angels were, or the watchers, were, were around at least for a few generations, right? I mean, well, Enoch was a few generations from Adam. Yes, absolutely. And they're still around today. And we could trace oh, them Oh, sorry, the I meant the original watchers, not, not just the offspring, right? Well, well, perhaps he may be talking collectively, because all throughout the scripture, people are, are responsible or, or held accountable, let me put it that way, for the sins of their parents all throughout the Old Testament. That was the, the, the custom of the time. You, you as a son, you received the blessings which were bestowed on your ancestors, but you also suffered the consequences of their sin. It's very possible since this race mixing was going on at the very time of Enoch, Enoch was only the third generation before Noah. And I really believe at the end of chapter four, I believe it is, where it says, and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. <clears throat> Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Why does it say that in the time of Seth's son? Now, Seth would be Enoch, as Jude says later, is seventh from Adam. So Seth is first from Adam, and Enos is second from Adam. And then we have the brief description of all of the descendants of Adam and, and the patriarchs down to the time of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, verse 23, and Enoch walked with God. And then we have his son Methuselah, and then Lamech, and then Noah. Enoch is seventh from Adam in the line of eldest male patriarchs, and, or I'm sorry, eldest male firstborn sons. Enoch is seventh from Adam, and Noah is the eighth preacher of righteousness, but he's the tenth generation from Adam. So Enoch, I, I really believe that in the days of Enos, because men lived for a long time in that period, that in the days of Enos, it says that that's when men began to call on the Lord 
Because the trouble with the fallen angels, which we see in Genesis chapter 6, had already begun. That's my opinion. That that's why it says, in his time, men began to call on the Lord. Because this trouble had already begun, where we read that the... I'm going to correct Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, the way I believe it should read. And I've explained that many times in papers at Christogenia. That the sons of heaven saw the daughters of Adam, and that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And that's the act which precipitated the flood. That the children of Adam had accepted by the time of Noah. They had accepted this race mixing. Now, we see a historical pattern here. Where at the beginning, when race mixing with outsiders first starts to occur. That... Many, if not most, of the men of the land, they reject it and they're opposed to it. And we've seen that recently in American history and even in recent English history with, with the importation of all these, um, these Arabs and, and these Negroes from Africa. So th this is an observable pattern in history where men at first reject race mixing until more and more people are race mixing, which we see happen in the American South and all over America today, to, where, to the point where it becomes acceptable, and then it becomes approved, and then you're the evil one if you continue to stand against it. That was Noah. So Noah's warning these people and warning these people. They must have been scoffing at him. But I really believe that it happened in the days of Enos, and Enoch was around in the, in the interim, to warn these, quote-unquote, angels, these sons of heaven, as, as it says here, the, the watchers of heaven, he was around while it was going on in order to upbraid them and, and rebuke them for it. So that's why Enoch walked with God. He was rebuking these bastards. This, that these branches from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was rebuking them. And this first Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls fragments of Enoch preserve portions of that rebuke. That's what I think is going on here. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. And um, j just one other thing, I, I went and read a lot of the Enoch when you sent the material, and uh, in one of the verses it says that um, that when the angels began to rebel that they would be judged 10,000 years later. And I know you, that you said this Enoch isn't entirely reliable, but if the Earth's been around 8,000 years, I mean, Ad Adamic creation, then th they were doing stuff for at least 2,000 years right before Adam was created messing around with creation well that's predicated on the idea that the earth's going to be judged very soon right <laughs> and we could go on true, another 500 true. years i mean the last remnant was eight people the last remnant when this race mixing became large scale in our race was eight people genesis chapter six right and and today we're going to have another remnant i pray it doesn't get down 
to eight people, but Christ himself said, unless those days be shortened, no flesh shall be left alive. So hopefully and, and prayerfully the days are shortened. He comes a little sooner before it gets down to eight of us, right? To eight white Christians in a whole planet. So, so we all get exasperated awaiting the judgment of God. That's just the way it is. I'm sure Noah got exasperated too. He had 500, or, or I'm sorry, he had 120 years to build that ark. And that is the real meaning of um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, where it says, my spirit, where, where Yahweh says, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And that is the, the distance of time from the time that he told Noah, look, you got to build this ark, to the time when the flood came. Noah had 120 years to build that ark. So that's the way I look at that. So 120 years, I mean, Peter said a thousand years is as a day. I, I wouldn't pin any hope on any set number of days or years that we see in first Enoch, but 10,000 years often simply signified a long time. Like the Greeks used the term myriad to, to represent 10,000, I believe, but it, it often was used in a context where it simply referred to a great horde. Like you could be, your city could be attacked by a great horde of soldiers and you can't really count the enemy soldiers, but you could just write a myriad, right? So who knows? Yeah. So, sorry, just uh, in case uh, I was unclear, I meant that um, 10,000 years going back from when Christ returns, meaning the fallen angels had at least like a thousand or two thousand years uh, before Adam was created. It just in case you get what I mean. Well, well, yeah, I I understand that, and it's very plausible too. We don't know. I, I would say we don't know, but what we have this um this truth revealed in the Gospel of Christ that that not everything was recorded. In, in the creation account in Genesis, that there were secrets, things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So, so we had these truths revealed in Christ, and all we see is this account in Revelation chapter 12 of these fallen angels, an account in Matthew chapter 13 that it was the devil who sowed the tares among the wheat, and, and that must be a reference because he's speaking about the origin of these two races of people. That must be a reference back to Genesis, and we have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil with this serpent, the same serpent that led those fallen angels is described as being the representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the parables of Genesis chapter 3. So all of these that these phenomenon are tied in. They're really one phenomenon, and that's this race of these watchers of heaven who we see the, the in Genesis chapter 6 corrupt this race of Adam. They corrupted Adam and Eve, and then they corrupted their descendants a couple of generations later. 
that this was an ongoing struggle. And Genesis chapter 6 is actually the first um, manifestation after the killing of Abel of the enmity between the two seeds, which by then the, the, the fallen angels, they're not just a seed, they're an entire tree, which is a race of men and women, ostensibly, with the knowledge of good and evil. And they are these watchers of heaven that we just read about here. And that's another long digression. We're definitely going to have a three-hour program today, I think. <laughs> so, as Paul of Tarsus had warned the Corinthians in his first epistle to them not to commit fornication, here Jude is warning his readers that if they disbelieve Christ and refuse to keep his commandments, they may face that same fate as the angels who sinned, who are now also compared to other sinners. In verse 7, now, the angels which kept not their first estate are the subject here, and Judas comparing them, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, Jude just defined the sin of the fallen angels, and going after strange flesh, that word strange is heteros, it means other or different, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Where Jude says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, he likened the acts of the fallen angels to those of the Canaanite cities, where he wrote in like manner with them, he tells us that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities did these things in like manner with the fallen angels, the watchers of heaven. The word for strange is heteros, which is different. So Jude describes fornication as race mixing. Adam described his wife as flesh of his flesh, but there are many races in Canaan found in Genesis chapters 14 and 15 which did not descend from Adam. Paul defined fornication in a similar manner where he referred to another race-mixing event, that of the Israelites and the daughters of Moab described in Numbers chapters 24 and 25, for which 24,000 Israelites died in a plague in one day. There is also the clear connection of the Canaanites to the Kenites and the Rephaim of Genesis chapter 15, who were descended from the serpent, from the Nephilim, the, the word for giant in Genesis chapter 6. There were giants in the earth in those days. It doesn't mean giant. It means Nephilim, which is a fallen one. And that's how we are confident to say that these are the fallen angels. The Nephilim is plural. Nephil is from a verb meaning to fall. Nephilim is fallen ones. So the Kenites and the Rephaim of Genesis chapter 15 were descended from the serpent, from the Nephilim, or fallen angels, and were also mixed in with the Canaanites of those cities, as well as they were mixed in with the rest of the Canaanites of Palestine. Among them were other races who were not descended from Adam. The 
Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Perizzites, and also the Zuzims. The Zuzims are from Genesis chapter 14. They are people described with a word that simply means roving creatures. They didn't even have a name for them. They were just roving creatures. And the end for all of them is the lake of fire of the Revelation and Matthew chapters 13 and 25, where we see that they are not sheep and therefore they must be goats or tares. They're the goats and the tares of those respective parables. Likewise, 1 Enoch chapter 10 in verse 13 tells us of the coming judgment of the fallen angels that in those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire. So even Yahshua Christ, where he said that the goats, the goat nations, are going to be cast into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels in Matthew chapter 25. Even he was repeating things which are previously found in the Enoch literature as the Dead Sea Scrolls versions, which have survived the Dead Sea Scrolls fragments, I should say, but which have survived are at least as old as the first century, as the time of Christ. And both Christ and Enoch as well as Jude here, were speaking these things in reference to the same people. So here Jude defines fornication as race mixing, which is the only honest way that one can interpret the words pursuit of different flesh, which describe the pursuit of different flesh. There are at least three other biblical witnesses to this definition of fornication. They are Paul at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8, where he refers to the incident with the men of Israel and the daughters of Moab as fornication, using the same Greek word. And then there is the revelation of Christ in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, where the same incident is referred to with the same language, which is also associated with the doctrine of Balaam. And in Paul's letters at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, where he called the race-mixing Esau a fornicator, using a form of the same Greek word once again. There's a fourth witness. Tobit. Tobit tells us not only not to commit fornication, but that when one does so, he hates his own people. This we read in Tobit chapter 4 in verses 12 and 13. And this is actually Tobit's father speaking to Tobit. Beware of all whoredom, the same word for fornication, pornia. Beware of all whoredom, my son. And chiefly, and this defines fornication right here, it's not just going out and paying a hundred bucks to sleep with some slut. Beware of all whoredom, my son. And chiefly, take a wife of the seed of thy fathers. 
That's what he means by whoredom, taking a wife of another race. And take not a strange woman to wife, in case you didn't get the first description, which is not of thy father's tribe, in case you didn't get the first two descriptions. He keeps repeating himself to clarify what he means by whoredom. For we are the children of the prophets. Noah, why did he mention Noah? Why didn't he say Moses? He mentioned Noah so that we get it, because that's what Genesis 6 describes, is race mixing. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, my son, that our fathers from the beginning, even that they all married wives of their own kindred, which is what Isaac did. Abraham wouldn't let Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. Isaac, Abraham got a wife for him from his own tribe and kindred and brought her back and Isaac married her. And that was Rebecca. And then Jacob, when Esau took wives of the Canaanites, Isaac said to Jacob, and it troubled Rebecca, Isaac said to Jacob, you go to Padanaram, to the, to the home of so-and-so, your mother's brother, and take a wife, Laban, the Syrian, and take a wife from there. And you will inherit, Genesis chapter 29, you will inherit the blessings of Abraham, rather than Esau, who was a race mixer, a fornicator. So, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember, my son, that our fathers from the beginning, even that they all married wives of their own kindred, their own kind, their own race, and were blessed in their children, and their seed shall inherit the land. If you have children of your own race and you're a white Christian, you have that promise. Now, therefore, my son, love thy brethren, and despise not in thy heart thy brethren, the sons and daughters of thy people, in not taking a wife of them. So if you don't take a wife of your own people, you hate your own people. For in pride, now, today they'll say, oh, you're white, you're proud that you're white. No, pride is arrogance. And when you disobey God, that's when that's what this description of pride means. That's what pride really means, disobedience to God. Arrogance. Gay pride is queer arrogance. It's sodomite arrogance. For in pride is destruction and much trouble. And in lewdness is decay and great want. For lewdness is the mother of famine. And every one of these damned faggots deserves to starve to death tomorrow, but we await the judgment of God. <laughs> the word for whoredom is that same Greek word, pornaya, which in the King James Version of the New Testament is often rendered as fornication. The word here in Jude is a verb derived from pornaya. Tobit tells us not only not to commit fornication, but that when one does so, he hates his own people. 
And that's a message that has uh, I've also e elucidated recently in my commentary on wisdom. That's a message that is also very clear in the first few chapters of the Wisdom of Solomon. And the Wisdom of Solomon is another book that the Jews tried to get rid of. There are no existing Hebrew copies, and, and they do everything they can to discredit the Greek translation. And that's so true, right? How um, if you bring a... A mixed wife or husband back to your village and have kids that you can destroy that village you can completely corrupt it right right i mean if if you coerce them or cow them into accepting that and they accept it and and their children start into marrying with your children and before you know it you have a whole village full of bastards two or three generations it's over with where in that passage, it was Tobit's father who was giving him that advice. And he said that it was because we are the children of the prophets. Not literally, but they were the people about whom the prophets, for whom, I should say, for and about whom the prophets were writing. Tobit was an Israelite of the Assyrian captivity in Nineveh. So Jude is also admonishing against fornication, and we read in Acts chapter 3, where it's declared that we are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So from Tobit to Acts chapter 3, the Christian profession has not changed. And it's throughout the letters of Paul, where he told the Corinthians explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that because their fathers, and he's speaking to Dorian Greeks, people who by race were Dorian Greeks, because they were descendants of the ancient Israelites, they also were the children of the prophets. Because all their fathers were baptized by Moses in the cloud and the sea, therefore do not commit fornication as your fathers had committed. And in one day, 23,000 had fallen. And that can only be a reference to the incident on the plains of Moab at Baal Peor, where the children of Israel had joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. So Tobit, Jude, Peter, Paul, they are all warning against race mixing. And these interlopers, these intruders, these false brethren snuck in unawares are of the same race of fallen angels, a lot more remote at a much more remote time. And these are the Jews of today. <clears throat> so, continuing with Jude in verse 8. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers, <clears throat> excuse me, every spring I start to get too much pollen, I think, and I get congested. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. And then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 10. But these indeed blaspheme whatever they do not know, 
Yet whatever is natural, they understand like irrational beasts. By these things, they destroy themselves. Now, as Peter had said, speaking of the same man in his epistle in 2 Peter chapter 10, in verses 10 and 12, walk they walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, a slightly different term where Jude says they despise a minion, dominion and speak evil of dignitaries, and despise government. Presumptuous they are, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, but these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, same thing Judah's saying, speak evil of things they, they understand not, just what Judah's saying here, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Just what Judah's saying here, with slightly different terms, Peter described their behavior and their attitudes in the exact same way. Now, I omitted repeating Jude 9 and 2 Peter 11 here, where when we discussed the verse from Peter in our last presentation, we explained that the angels would not even bring an accusation against these men before God because they were already condemned from of old, from ancient times. So they could not have been Israelites Yet they nevertheless disputed the body of Moses. Now, that cannot refer to Moses's physical body because Moses himself had died and he was peacefully buried in a place that no man knew. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it is speaking directly of Yahweh God as having buried him. Yahweh buried Moses. It says, after Moses died, he was told to go to the top of Mount Nebo, where he would see the land from afar that was promised to the children of Israel. But he was not allowed to cross into it that he died there in Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 5. So I'm going to read from verse 6. And he buried him. Yahweh is the subject of that. He did it. And he buried him in a land, in a valley, in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor, which is part of the same place where Baal Peor was. But no man knows of his sepulcher, or his burial place, unto this day. So Yahweh buried Moses in a hidden place. Therefore, the body of Moses, the physical body of Moses here, is not what's being spoken of. The body of Moses here must represent the law, the writings of Moses, as the work of an author or craftsman is often called his body, your body of work. Now, of course, since Moses appeared with Elijah before Christ at the transfiguration on the mount, he, he may not have been buried as we imagine. 
but the scripture says that Yahweh buried him and no man knows where. I don't know if you have any comments. Yeah, they tried to say that the uh, angel Satan is battling with Michael over the, the body Moses, right? <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense, but it's a real Judeo thing that they'll say in churches. Well, well right, absolutely. When Jude is using allegory to represent a different phenomenon, which is the fact that these fallen angels have, have been disputing with the people of God and even with Christ over the meanings of the law, over the body of Moses, the written body of his work, since time immemorial they've been doing this. And, and I'll describe that as we proceed. But here we must remember that the subject of Jude's diatribe is still those some men who have stolen in. Those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment, godless men, as they're described in verse 4. And we see that he was referring to the outsiders who have infiltrated the congregations of Israel from ancient times. Peter, in chapter 2, verse 12 of his second epistle, referred to these same men, where he wrote that these, having been born as natural, irrational animals, as the Christianity New Testament translates it, these, having been born as natural, irrational animals into destruction and corruption, also shall perish. The King James word version, the King James version words it quite differently, where it calls them natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. These words can also describe all of the non-white aliens among the white race today, and they reflect the attitude that Christians should have towards all of those who are not of our kind. In respect to this, Paul says in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die, but to those who are being preserved, to us it is the power of Yahweh. Paul was referring to these same bastards, the tares among the wheat, the goats among the sheep. In the book of Jeremiah, especially in chapter 2, we see that the people of Judah were chastised by God for race mixing. Yahweh exclaimed in verse 13 of that chapter of Jeremiah, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Then Yahweh goes on to explain in verse 21 of the chapter, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. And race mixing is the sin that cannot be cleansed. No matter how badly a high yeller Negro 
or a mestizo, no matter how badly he wants to wash the soil out of his skin, he can never be white. Now, this problem went back to Judah himself, since as Malachi records it. Judah had married the daughter of a strange god, and we're going to get on that subject soon with the corrupted priesthood. That's Malachi chapter 2. And therefore, with the progeny of Shelah, his surviving Canaanite son, right? With the progeny of Shelah, from the earliest times, there were Canaanites who had claimed to be of Judah. There were bastards claiming to be of Judah. While it is also evident in Scripture that many of the children of Israel had at various times mixed with the Canaanites from the time of the divided kingdom, they went off into paganism. And therefore, they had no part in the early corruption of the body of Moses. Israelites cannot be blamed for that. And, of course, the body of Moses can refer to the laws of our God as they were kept in the temple of Jerusalem. In 1 Chronicles chapter 2, at the end, there's an obscure passage that says that the Canaanites were scribes in Jerusalem. So Canaanites were infiltrated, were infiltrating in those days, and they were scribes in Jerusalem. In Jeremiah chapter 8, the prophet had also lamented the fact that the law was corrupted in his day. So by the time of Jeremiah, there were corruptions in, in the scriptures. There were corruptions being introduced into the scriptures. In the days of Jeremiah, it had already happened. And in Jeremiah chapter 8, in verse 8, and I'm going to read from the Septuagint because I believe that the intention of Jeremiah is clearer in the ancient translation. How will you say, Yahweh speaking to the people of Judah in Jeremiah's time, how will you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? In vain have the scribes used a false pen. Now, I could read the New American Standard Version. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. And that's why we can never even trust entirely in the law without Christ. It's through Christ and his apostles, through the lens of the New Testament, that we can arrive at the truths of the law. But there are places where the law is corrupted. And it's very clear to, to me that there are conflicts in passages such as Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, what, where it says, thou shalt not abhor an Edomite. Well, guess what? Isaac and Rebekah disinherited Esau. And Yahweh says he hated Esau. And Paul repeats in Romans chapter 9 the fact that Yahweh hated Esau, and Paul described the Edomites as vessels of destruction. So if Paul does that, is he not violating the King James wording at Deuteronomy 23, verse 7? But the truth is, 
that that passage is demonstrably corrupt where it should have said an Aramean. And then there's no conflict in scripture. Aramean, Do you think the Edomites Assyrian. used that verse uh, when they were being converted as an argument? I do believe so. I do believe so, but Paul knew the law, and he cited passages from, he cited laws from Deuteronomy on very many occasions in his epistles. He certainly knew what it said, but he didn't read it the way we did, because Paul described the Edomites as vessels of destruction. Isn't that despising an Edomite? So, if you understand one that the simple fact that that D, that the Hebrew form of the D and the R were very often confused, and probably pur purposely in many places by the scribes, I'm sure in many places it was purposeful <coughs> in order to obscure certain things, and the D and the R were often confused, and this is one instance. And our opinion can be proven from Deuteronomy chapter 26, 5, just a little ways down the ancient scroll, maybe one column or so, where, where it says, and, and this is once again the words of Moses, and it says, and thou shalt speak and say before Yahweh thy God, Assyrian. And Aramean, Aram, instead of Edom, Aromi, instead of Edomi, a difference of one letter in Hebrew, and those two letters are very similar. Assyrian, ready to perish, was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. So what do we read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 7, if we understand that the D and the R were confused in order to remove all the conflicts which that verse, as it reads in the King James Version, creates with Scripture, if we change that to an R, if we correct it to an R, thou shalt not abhor a Syrian, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. Deuteronomy 23.7 reflects perfectly what we read in Deuteronomy 26.5. So that's my second witness to that. Now, Jeremiah showed us in chapter 24 of his prophecy how Yahweh had separated, or I should say perhaps distinguished, the good and bad figs of Judah during the Babylonian captivity. However, the bad figs never lost their purported identity as Judah. And added to these bad fig Jews were the Edomites who were subjected by the, Mac the Maccabees in the second century BC, where from that time, all of Edom was converted to the religion of Judea and purported to be Judeans. Paul distinguished between the Israelite vessels of mercy and the Edomite vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9. Here. Jude equated these infiltrators, who are the blasphemers of God, with animals, as Peter had also, which is exactly what they are, since they do not have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, which Yahweh had imparted to the race of Adam.
And Jude says that very thing of these same people in verse 19, which we will get to soon. So even though they appear to be men, with their animal-like tendencies, they destroy themselves. Now, all men are subject to those animal-like tendencies, but as Paul explains in Romans chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 7, if we live in the Spirit, then through the power of that Spirit which God instilled in the Adamic man, we can overcome those animal-like tendencies. We don't have to submit to ourselves to them. The Adamic man having those two natures, where the other races do not have that second nature. They can't overcome their animal-like tendencies, that they rape and loot and pillage at, at the drop of a hat. And, and it means nothing to them when they do it. They're not even, they don't even get a guilty conscience over it. They only feel bad when they get caught because they got caught. Now, in another way, Jude likens them and their sin to fornication once again. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. And we can find out what the way of Cain is with Jude's next two statements, because these are all Hebrew parallelisms, which describe the same phenomenon in different ways, in consecutive words or phrases, that's what a, or even verses or paragraphs or chapters, that's what a Hebrew parallelism is. They have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, Korah was an Israelite, but we will see how this relates to the way of Cain, and we will see how the error of Balaam relates to the way of Cain. The way of Cain and the wages of Balaam have everything to do with race. Many may dispute that statement concerning Cain. However, where the way of Cain is equated to the gainsaying of Korah, it may be demonstrated that this relation is also true. The gainsaying of Korah is described in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a Levite and a cousin of Moses and Aaron. However, he insisted on performing priestly duties, which Yahweh had prescribed for the sons of Aaron alone. And concerning the offerings, they were a function reserved specifically for Aaron's son Eleazar, who, with the death of his elder brothers, obtained the position of firstborn. So Korah insisted upon making sacrifices which he had no right to perform. Likewise, Cain made a sacrifice, and it was a proper sacrifice. He sacrificed the first fruits of his own labor as Abel sacrificed the first fruits of his. Cain made a sacrifice, and his sacrifice was rejected by Yahweh. We see with the sacrifice of Cain that Abel was also making a sacrifice, and his sacrifice was accepted by Yahweh. Since the eldest son is traditionally the family priest, and we see that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, in Numbers chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we see that ancient tradition. It may seem 
And we see it in the, the phrase proclaimer of righteousness in, in Peter, as we had discussed. That's the only way that Noah could be the eighth proclaimer of righteousness, is to be the eighth eldest living patriarch. The eldest son is traditionally the family priest. He receives the family priesthood from the father. So it may seem that Cain should have been doing the sacrificing and not Abel. If indeed Cain was Adam's true son, Abel challenged Cain and he prevailed because Abel was Adam's true firstborn son and Cain was a product of fornication, the seduction of Eve. That is why Cain is not counted in Adam's genealogy and why Cain was said to be of the wicked one in 1 John 3.12 and a devil as well as a murderer from the beginning in John chapter 8 in the words of Christ. There is no other purely scriptural way to interpret these events and this equation which Jude makes here. So, and um, Cain tried to steal the priesthood from <laughs> Abel, and today the Jews tried to steal this, you know, the Israelite uh, heritage from us. So it's the exact same story, right? Exactly. All over again. Cain tried to usurp the priesthood for himself when he really wasn't worthy. So what did God tell him? Why are you down? Why, why are you dejected? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? He's challenging Cain to do well. And then he says, and if you don't do well, it's because sin lieth at the door. How does sin lieth at the door? If Cain doesn't do well, it's because he was a bastard. That's why. And he couldn't do well. He went right out, proved that God was true, and killed his own brother or half-brother, technically. But to the ancient Hebrews, there was no word for half-brother. You were a brother or you weren't. He killed his own brother. So he proved that his, his rejection and his um, not being able to do well was because sin lieth at the door, meaning that he was a bastard the moment he entered into the world, at the moment of his conception. Both Cain and Korah attempted to usurp Yahweh's established order, and so did Balaam in a different way. The sin of Cain is also the same as the error of Balaam. It's not that Cain committed the sin of fornication before he slew Abel. He was a product of fornication. So the sin of Cain is also the same as the error of Balaam. Peter, speaking of these same infiltrators, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says that abandoning the straight road, they have wandered astray. Following in the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who had loved the wages of unrighteousness. Yahweh commanded the children of Israel be a separate people. Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. And each time that he attempted to curse them, Yahweh forced blessings to proceed from his mouth instead of curses. 
So upon failing to achieve his purpose for his wage, he counseled Balak how else he could defeat the Israelites by encouraging them to race mix. This is where, in Numbers chapter 25, it is said that Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. From Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, we read, in the message of Christ to the assembly at Pergamos, and these are the words of Christ, but I have a few things against you, because you have there those holding the teaching of Balaam, who had taught Balak to put a trap before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. Now, a little later, in that same chapter, Christ himself indicates to us what he meant by fornication because he's speaking about Jezebel who loved those priests of Baal and those priests of Baal could be counted among those false brethren kept who crept in unawares were teaching the children of Israel to commit fornication through marriage at the altars of Baal, through these fertility rituals where people would have sex with anyone who came along at the altar. That was the original marriage at the altar, where the Hebrew Israelites got married in their beds at home. So, Christ tells us that he will cast Jezebel, who didn't repent from her fornication, in that same chapter, right after he talks about this Balaam having taught Balak to do this, he talks about Jezebel and those who commit fornication with her, who don't repent, that he will cast them into a couch and he shall punish them, but he doesn't say he shall kill them, but he will kill their children with death. Why? Because those children are the products of their fornication. So here, we see that the error, of, the error of Balaam is teaching Balak to get the children of Israel to commit race mixing, fornication. Phineas is rewarded with an eternal priesthood for slaying a Midianite man, an, um, an Israelite man with a Midianite woman who's having sex on the floor of their tent. That's the only way that Phineas could kill them with one thrust of the spear through both their bellies. They must have been having sex on the floor of the tent. And Phineas did that, and the plague, which killed 23,000 Israelites, or 24,000 in, in the epistle to the first Corinthians, um, that's the only way that can be interpreted, was that plague came upon them for their race mixing. 23,000 of them died. Phineas stood up and said, we're putting an end to this, and killed one of the race mixers. And the, the woman that he was having intercourse with, and that stayed the plague. So we know what the error of Balaam was. It's very clear. It's the encouragement of race mixing. And that Cain was a product of race mixing. 
And Cain was doing the same thing that Korah had done, which was to attempt to establish his own priestly order in opposition to the order which Yahweh God had established at Sinai. So all these things are indeed interrelated. Jude wasn't just picking random examples from the Old Testament. He was picking very specific examples for a very specific reason. So to repeat Jude, verse 11, Woe to them, because they have gone in the way of Cain, and in deception they have they pour forth the wages of Balaam. I'm repeating this from the Christogenian New Testament. And dis are destroyed in the disputation of Korah. Jude makes an interesting analogy here. The way of Cain, who is Adam Kind's first bastard, leads to the error of Balaam and causes destruction such as that which had resulted from the disputation of Korah. So, Jude is really showing us a progression of what happens when you bring false doctrines, contrary to the law, into the assemblies of God. While Korah himself had nothing to do with fornication, he nevertheless sought to set aside Yahweh's order and establish his own. The way Jude has written this verse, one of these things leads to another. The bastardization process leads to further bastardization which leads to destruction as a judgment resulting from the corruption of Yahweh's established order. That process of corruption and destruction can be witnessed throughout the Bible and history, starting with the fall of our first parents. Yeah, we see exactly that the Jews tried to corrupt Christianity, and once they had, uh, they could then begin spreading it to all the other races, right? And then into marriage, because they're Christian as well. It's, it's all the same story of all this. Absolutely. And today we are witnessing the final culmination of that process. And, and race mixing, which when I was a young man, even in New Jersey in the 1970s, a place as culturally enriched as New Jersey, because it was really one of the first heavily integrated states, in my opinion, after they had passed this um, Immigration Act of 1966 or 67, which opened the floodgates to non-whites, non-white immigration into the United States. It really did. Even in New Jersey, if you dated somebody of another race when I was a teenager, there was a stigmatism with that. And and even normal people, normal church-going Catholics and Protestants would want nothing to do with you. They would set you aside, yet you would um, become a pariah. It, it wasn't anything that was generally accepted even in the mid-1970s. But today, it's all over the place. Once they started cajoling and shaming people into accepting this, people abandoned 2,000-year-old Christian traditions to go along, to get along in the modern society, which is entirely corrupted with these sins. It only took three generations from the civil rights era to, to corrupt all of modern Christianity 
and and have them all accept race mixing. And the fact that they all just appeared out of nowhere in towns shows that there must be organizations run by Jews who purposely go out and, and plant them there, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's that these um, false brethren crept in unawares, that they, they've been hard at work for centuries and centuries in order to corrupt the assemblies of Christ. And now they're confident that they think they've done it, that they believe they've accomplished it. So they get bolder and bolder in their public proclamations, in their media, with the laws that they propose in our legislatures. Their judgment's going to come upon them real soon. God will not be mocked. These words will be fulfilled. These words that they did their best to get rid of 1,700 years ago. So Jude, speaking about them, proclaims, in verse 12, these are the spots in your feast of charity. Feasting together, as I said, they're getting bold. Feasting together without fear, tending to themselves. Clouds without water being carried away by the winds. And, and the Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 13, wrote a similar description of these same infiltrators, that they are spots and blemishes sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. In other words, these Jews and these other races have deceived themselves that they are worthy to be feasting with us. They're deceived. They've deceived themselves. And in the same chapter, verse 17, he says, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. Now, these phrases used by Jude and Peter, clouds without water, streams without water, they can, the, these words must have been chosen by them purposely. They can only be alternative descriptions of those same broken cisterns of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And we see the same allegory again, where Solomon, writing Proverbs, admonishes, or, or has actually depicted himself, I believe, as being admonished by his father, in Proverbs chapter 5, drink waters out of thine own cisterns and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be thine only, and not strangers with thee. That's an allegory for the same thing that Tobit said. Take a wife from your own stream, from your own river, from your own tribe or race, as it says in Tobit. In, in Tobit. And, and those wells without water, a broken cistern is a cistern that can hold no water. As a race-mixed man, a bastard does not have the spirit of God, which Yahweh had imparted to Adam. So finishing verse 12, Jude says, he calls them or continues to describe them as late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead being uprooted. Remember the fig tree that Christ didn't find any fruit on in Jerusalem, and he cursed it, and that was 
representative of this very same thing, which Jude says, the curse of Christ was representative of the the race of people, that fig tree was representative of the race of people in Jerusalem, that even though there were Israelites mixed in with the Edomites, Jerusalem would never again bear fruit. Those Israelites who continued to reject Christ eventually became race mixed themselves with the Edomites, and that is the, the origin of today's Jews. Jude here seems to refer to the parable of the fig tree in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, which also corresponds to the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Christ. This is another parable of a fig tree. Then he spoke of this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit in it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, it is three years from which I have come seeking fruit in this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down, for why should the land be useless? But answering, he says to him, Master, leave it this year also, until when I should dig around it and cast manure. And so then it may produce fruit in the future, but otherwise not, you shall cut it down. That three years plus one more, that, that represents the three and a half year ministry of, of Christ. There was no fruit in Jerusalem. So that's two fig tree parables representing Jerusalem. And here Jude compares the, these bastards and these fallen angels who have infiltrated the bodies of Christ as late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead being uprooted. Being twice dead, once they are uprooted, Jude once again tells us that these people do not have the Spirit of God, since resurrection is through that Spirit, as Christ attests, as Paul attests. If one has not the Spirit, there is no resurrection. Being dead both physically and spiritually, once they die, they are twice dead those spots in our Feast of Charity. To be resurrected, one must be born with the Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the Adamic man is born a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed. It is evident that both physical and spiritual bodies grow out of the same seed. The Apostle John also mentions this seed in his first epistle, where he says that each who has been born from of God does not create wrongdoing because his seed abides in him and he is not able to do wrong because from of God or from of Yahweh he has been born. Therefore Christ said of those who opposed him in Matthew chapter 23 verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. They're, they don't have that spirit inside them, which means that they're full of dead men's bones. They're twice dead. Once the body dies, they're done. So Jude describes them in verse 13. 
as thorny waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars, that is a direct connection to the angel who rebelled against Yahweh God in heaven, Revelation chapter 12, who the serpent, described as the serpent, who with his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven after him. So Judas telling us the same story, describing these same fallen angels again and again and again in different ways, this should be absolutely unmistakable if you would only read Jude after you study all the rest of Scripture and the original words and meanings of all the languages. I'm sure many Christians read Jude and most of this goes in one ear and out the other because they never put the entire narrative together or their pastors never put it together for them. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. So, again, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says the same things of these same people. These are streams without water and clouds being driven by a tempest for whom the gloom of darkness is kept. And the ideas represented by Jude verses 4 through 13 are found in large part in various places in one Enoch. And here are 1st Enoch chapters 15 and 16. And I'm not going to... I, I, I edited this, so I'm not sure which chapter this is from because I cut it to under nine verses it being far too long, so I'll try to correct that as I publish my notes. This is from chapter 15 exclusively, I believe. And he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, fear not, Enoch, and I'm just reading a longer section of what I had already cited in part, Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach hither and hear my voice. And go, say, and go, say to the watchers of heaven, who have sent thee to intercede for them. You should intercede for men and not men for you. So this race of fallen angels had sent Enoch to pray for them. And now Enoch's being told what to do in response to that. Go back to them and say to them, you should intercede for men and not for you. Wherefore you have left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and lain with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken to yourselves wives and done like the children of earth and begotten giants as your sons. And though you were holy, spiritual, having the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And as the children of men have lusted after the flesh and blood, as those who do die and perish, those who race mix, die and perish. (coughs) And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh, shall be called evil spirits upon the earth. They're here on earth. They're not floating around in heaven. 
and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal, meaning ancient origin. They shall be primal, ancient, and primary. They shall be evil spirits on the earth and evil spirits shall they be called. Now, Bill, should the word giant there be Nephilim as well? Or is, or is it actually Rephaim? You know, I did not check the Hebrew and I don't know if I have it, it, if this particular passage even exists in the fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls so that I can check the Hebrew. This, the, a Hebrew equivalent. This, um, Juanina came to us through the Ethiopic and Charles, that being discovered in the 19th century, Charles, being a, a, a scholar of those languages, had taken it and translated it into English for us. Now, there are copious notes in his translation of Enoch, which can still be obtained from third-party sources. But I don't know if the notes comment on that precisely or explicitly. And, of course, he may not even know because it came through Ethiopic rather than through Hebrew. There's no doubt that the Nephilim were called mighty men in the earth. And where Nephilim are described in the ancient mythology of neighboring and related cultures. And when I say that, I say it in reference to the Sumerian and Akkadian legends of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls were familiar with these same legends that we have discovered rather recently in our own culture. And that began to happen as the British and German archaeologists had begun to excavate the ruins of Mesopotamia as the British Empire had, had subjected the Near East to its, to its rule. So that opened the door for archaeologists, and, and Henry Layard discovered the ruins of Nineveh in the 1850s or thereabouts. And from about that time, massive excavations and, and copious numbers or, or, or extremely large numbers of clay tablets had been discovered throughout in, in Nineveh and throughout other places in Mesopotamia, which had been translated, which some of them are still being translated. It, it took decades to get these things translated, but as men translated them, they began to publish editions of these ancient myths and, and legends. Gilgamesh was one of the fallen ones. He was one of these sons of heaven, and he was a man here on earth who ruled, ruled over several cities in ancient Mesopotamia. I'm sorry, I have gas. In ancient Mesopotamia, and other so-called giants were described in those same legends, and, and they were described as being half from heaven and, and half man. Or perhaps in some of those legends, 
two-thirds and one-third son of heaven and, and son of man or, or heavenly creature and earthly creature. So, so we see all of this um, Enoch literature is reflected not only in the Hebrew Bible, in, in our canonical scriptures, but also in, in the ancient legends and myths of Mesopotamia, and they carry over into the Greek legends of the Titans and, and the early mythology of the reflected in Hesiod's Theogony and and similar epic poetry. Yeah, they called them the Titans, <laughs> didn't they? These uh, sons of heaven. Yes. So, so is it possible Gilgamesh survived the flood, and at least uh, a legend of him survived? Well, well, I mean, Gilgamesh himself should have been long dead, but the legend certainly did survive. And and there that's evident because they're in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and and the Greeks were pretty much oblivious. I, I mean, they had their own legends which correlate with the myths of Mesopotamia um, to a very great degree, actually. But most of the names were lost or had been changed. I don't think we'll ever see the name Gilgamesh in any Greek literature, but it's in the Aramaic copies of and, and Hebrew copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it wasn't lost to the peoples of the East, but perhaps, as the Greeks were wont to do, they translated that into another name in Greek, which is beyond us now, unless they were oblivious to it because the Greeks were indeed oblivious to a lot of the history of Mesopotamia, even history which is only a couple of centuries before the, the epic poets and, and the Greek historians began to write. I'm t speaking about Homer, Hesiod, Herodotus, and Thucydides for the most part. That they were oblivious to the building of rebuilding of Babylonian of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, which is mentioned in the book of Daniel. And and the, the Greeks were oblivious to that fact. And that was only from 150 years before Herodotus wrote, but Herodotus claimed that that um Babylon was built by a woman, by a queen. I'm trying to remember the name, and it's escaped me. It's kind of on the tip of my tongue. It begins with an S. I, I just don't get it. It's the it was... Assyrian goddess, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, well, she was turned into an Assyrian goddess, but she was a historical queen. I do have that explained somewhere at Christagenia. So, yeah, Herodotus thought that Babylon had stood for hundreds of years, but when the... Um, the stones of Babylon were dug out of the ground. A lot of them had the name of Nebuchadnezzar on them. And, and Daniel credits Nebuchadnezzar with rebuilding Babylon. So Semiramis, thank you. I, I, I was just drawing a blank. Even though I knew it began with an S, I was just drawing a blank. I guess I'm getting senile at 60. That's okay. <laughs> Well, well. anyway, yeah, they were oblivious to a lot of the history that preceded them only by decades or a couple of centuries of Mesopotamia. But Gilgamesh, having survived in the 
mentions of Gilgamesh, not the story, but mentions of this Gilgamesh as one of the giants having survived in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we can see that the epic of Gilgamesh must have still been known to people in the first century AD, even though it can date to as early as the 2500 BC. But it was still around when they wrote those Dead Sea Scrolls. And it describes the um, origin of these Nephilim or these giants from the pagan point of view, right? What we're in scripture that they're described and mentioned from the Christian point of view. So whatever we think of one Enoch, or whether we can be assured that the writings of Enoch, which Jude was referring to, are those same writings which we have today in one Enoch, in one Enoch, is immaterial. While I do not trust one Enoch, many of these same sentiments are found in the fragments of Enoch among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I believe is more authentic and is closer to what the apostles had cited, if it's not what the apostles had cited. But these things which are expressed in Enoch are also often found in scripture, but an examination of the Enoch literature helps us to better understand what both Jude and Peter had described in these epistles. So we don't need Enoch to understand what they're describing, but it sure does help. And it helps us um, put the stitches in the right places to sew these things together. It is evident in these passages, which we have cited, that the Enoch literature relates the idea that evil spirits would cause havoc upon the earth. There it is also evident that demons or evil spirits proceed from the bastard children of race mixing. However, these are not necessarily all disembodied spirits. Otherwise, how could they be spots in Feasts of Charity? They're spots in Feasts of Charity because they're sitting at the table. Rather, the Apostle John was talking about embodied spirits when he warned in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of God or Yahweh. Because, and I'm studying the Christian New Testament where I have Yahweh, because many false prophets have gone out into the society or world. By this you know, the spirit of Yahweh. Each spirit which professes that Yahshua Christ has come into flesh is from of Yahweh. Yahshua Christ meaning Yahweh the Messiah. And each spirit which does not profess Yahshua is not from of Yahweh, and this is the Antichrist, whom you have heard comes, whom, whom you have heard that it comes, and is already now in society. John's speaking about embodied spirits, not disembodied spirits. He's talking about people, not demons. True children of God are born of God. Bastards are born out of the errors of society, the sins of the world to use the language of the King James Version. As, Second Peter as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, as we translated the passage in our presentation, these wicked 
infiltrators into the body of Christ were born into corruption and destruction. Moving on to verse 14. Here Luke cites Enoch explicitly, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince, or that should be convict, all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude seems to be referring to Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9, 1 Enoch, what we find in, I should say, 1 Enoch, 1, 9, which says in the Charles edition, And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones, or saints, to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict, where the King James has convinced and should be convict, all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed, and all of the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And this is the end of days, right? The the uh, dividing of the sheep and the goats when he returns. Well, absolutely. And, and that's why they are reserved for the darkness forever, ultimately to be cast into the lake of fire, the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That word convict is the he, the, the Greek word elenko, a verb, and it means to convict, not convince. It, it means to bring convincing proof in order to convict somebody of something. So it's not that they are going to um, convince the angels or persuade these fallen angels that they sinned so that they might do better. It's a conviction against them so that they can justify casting them into the lake of fire is what it's describing. <clears throat> so you can use Jude's um, quotation to correct Charles's edition, evidently. Well, Charles's quotation corrects Jude's on that one word, convict, right, rather than convince. But that convince, I think it's an archaic use of the term. But it should have been convict. That's minor. From this point, I'm going to cite the balance of what Jude said about the infiltrators without making too many notes. First, I skipped a paragraph. I, I just want to say real quick, Jude's reference to Enoch as the seventh from Adam, which he is also called in 1 Enoch chapter 60 in verse 8, seventh from Adam. That reference also reveals a difference between Cain and Abel. Which one do we choose as the eldest male patriarch? Because that's what Jude's referring to here. Adam himself doesn't count here, right? Enoch being the seventh from Adam. So, therefore, in order to reckon how Enoch was the seventh from Adam, either Cain or Abel, but not both, must be included in this reckoning 
in order to arrive at seven firstborn males from Adam. You can't exclude both Cain and Abel, because if you do, you're going to end up with six and not seven. There is no other way to reckon Enoch as seventh from Adam within the context of Scripture than to count the men who held the, the position of firstborn son, right? There's no other way to get seven going from Adam to Enoch. So Seth replaced the murdered Abel. And therefore, Seth inherited the rights of the firstborn son from him. So we have it. One, first from Adam, has to be Abel. Second from Adam has to be Seth. Then third is Enos. Then fourth is Canaan. Then fifth is Mahaliel. Sixth is Jared. And seventh is Enoch. That's the only way to get seventh from Adam, is counting those men who had at one time or another held the position of firstborn son, eldest living son. Abel had it for a while. Cain couldn't have had it. If we count Cain, we have to exclude Abel. And Seth was not a replacement for Cain. He was a replacement for Abel. The Lord has given me another son in place of Abel, Genesis chapter 4, or perhaps it was Genesis chapter 3. I don't even remember. I think it was Genesis. Yeah, it had to be Genesis chapter 4. But let me go and, and cite that specifically. <sighs> Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, she said has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So Seth becomes the second man with the distinction of being the eldest firstborn son. And then Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, and Enoch. So this demonstrates the exclusion of Cain from the moment of his birth as the counting purposely forces us to include either Cain or Abel, but not both, Seth being a replacement for Abel, and not Cain, as we have just read. Cain was completely excluded from the line of Abel, from the line of Adam. He was never included. There's not one place that includes him in Adam's genealogy. Now, how many murderers were excluded from the genealogy in, in Scripture? Because Christ, David, was a murderer. He was held accountable for murdering Uriah the Hittite. And Hittite doesn't really mean a tribal Hittite in that instance. So David was a murderer, and he was accounted as a murderer. But he was counted in the genealogy of Christ, and Christ was proud to be a son of David. So you don't just discount murderers from the genealogy because they were murderers. Many of the kings of Judah were described as murderers in the Old Testament, but they're still counted. Murderers of their own people, but they're still counted 
at, as ancestors of Christ in the genealogies, any imagining that Cain is the true son of Adam is a perversion of scripture because he couldn't have been. So from this point, I'm going to cite and, and briefly describe the balance of what Jude said about these infiltrators, and, and I'll try to make this really concise, right? Verse 16, unless you have anything to add before I go off on this tangent. No, no, it's okay. We can get, okay. get into it. Verse 16, these are grumbling murmurers going in accordance with their own lusts and their mouths speak excesses, admiring appearances for the sake of advantage. Now, now that's important there, that the Nestle Alan Novum Testamentum Greca, the 27th edition, made a cross-reference to First Enoch here, to chapter 5, verse 4. But ye, ye have not been steadfast, nor done the commandments of the Lord, but ye have turned away and spoken proud and hard words with your impure mouths against his greatness. O ye half-hearted, ye shall find no peace. Peter likewise says of them, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So, you could escape these devils, but they're going to allure you back with the lusts of the flesh and through much wantonness. So perhaps they'll go to Hollywood and they'll produce a whole bunch of porno flicks. And they'll distribute them real cheap throughout the streets of your city so that everybody in your city gets hooked on porn. How about that? Who does that? And then Peter said, well, they promised them liberty because we all need sexual freedom. They themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. Who does that describe but these same damned Jews? Paul and James both warn Christians not to have any respect for the status or stature of persons. That is what the phrase respected persons truly means, and it has nothing to do with race, as the promises of Christ are only for one race. It has everything to do with stature or status. So, here we see that Jew chastised the infiltrators as admiring appearance for the sake of of advantage. In other words, they are sycophants and flatterers. So he is referring to that same thing. But you, beloved, verse 17, must be mindful of the words spoken beforehand by the ambassadors, or, or I'm sorry, I had neglected Jude, and I'm actually quoting from the Christiania New Testament, but I don't want to do that. So that's an error that I had in my notes. But beloved, remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. And here Jude must be referring to the written warnings which also appear in the writings of both Peter and Paul uh, 
which are found in Second Peter chapter 3, following his own discussion of these creatures, and in Second Timothy chapter 3. So, that's the words spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, and apparently one or both of those epistles must have already existed when Jude wrote his own epistle. So, he goes on and, and, and further illustrates that these are those making divisions. Animals not having the spirit, which basically corroborates everything we said about those clouds without water being broken cisterns in, in Jeremiah. So we know from Jeremiah and from Jude saying that they are clouds without water, what we, we can put these things together very easily without stretching, without twisting any of the meanings and understand that broken cisterns come from that sin which can't be washed off, which, is, which occurs when Yahweh plants a pleasant plant and some man comes along trying to graft in some strange slips, which are alien wives by which to create bastards who are not authentic members of our race and therefore they're clouds without water and they're broken cisterns because they're bastards. They can't have that spirit of God in them. They don't. Because the spirit, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is sown a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed. So if you're not an Adamic man in physical body, then you don't have that same spirit which Yahweh had granted to Adam. It's a bastard spirit, and it's destined to be destroyed. Just like when your body dies, you're destroyed. You're twice dead. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul informed us that those that divisions make manifest the identity of the children of God, where he is talking about men of contention, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, and not merely men with minor disagreements. And he says about these men of contention, or because of these men of contention, for there must also be sects among you in order that those approved those who are approved will become evident among you. So we see that those who create heresies or introduce damnable heresies, as both Peter and Jude explain, are infiltrators into the assemblies of Christ and are not his children. Now, from this point, Jude offered his readers consolation, even exhorting them that they should have mercy to sinners among themselves. When he says that, he's not talking about the infiltrators and tells us once again that these infiltrators were not merely rejected for being sinners, but they are never going to be granted any mercy. So that's the racial message of the epistle of Jude. The exact same judgment Enoch uh, gave to them, right? <laughs> There's no mercy. 
and everything the apostles have warned we're living now in the cultivation of not obeying them and or not listening to them and we're in uh, serious trouble now right absolutely early churchmen did not obey the epistles of the apostles that they that they pretended to that they pick and choose lines out of scripture which seems like they obey them but what they do is they follow church doctrine and the church doctrine was corrupted from the second century and that's evident in the writings of all the church fathers that they were introducing platonism that they were introducing also kabbalah and and gnosticism and all sorts of evil heresies when i say kabbalah i don't really mean the kabbalah as we know it but these ideas found in the kabbalah are very ancient and many of them are found in neoplatonism and in gnosticism so i mean there's nothing new under the sun the kabbalah itself wasn't written until the Jews developed it, certain Jews developed it in the 12th century in Spain and Portugal. That the um, concepts, a lot of the concepts in the Kabbalah anyway, are very ancient. And, and that's because the pagan religions and the Kabbalah itself and the Talmud, they all have their origins with these same bastard fallen angels. So these church fathers, that, that they didn't do us any favor. And we don't know exactly who Eusebius of Caesarea was or who exactly who any of them were. They were living in, in cosmopolitan times in, in the ancient Roman Empire. And many of them may well indeed, them or their teachers, may have been tares among the wheat who Jude warns about here and who Peter warns about here, because they were already, that there were all these Judaizers that Paul of Tarsus was contending with 15 years after the crucifixion. 15 years after the resurrection of Christ, there were already Judaizers creeping into the assembly, and, and the apostles were contending with them. They didn't waste any time. If we yeah, I saw a, a YouTube video the other day, and it was showing... Um... Greek coins, and on the coins, they they had um, Greek philosophers. I don't know how, why they had, you know, the Greek philosopher must have got coins minted with their faces, and some of them you could really see, like, it was clearly a Jew, like, the, the hook nose going downwards. You could see even then some of these Greek philosophers were, must have been uh, Canaanites, right? Well, well, I'm certain that a lot of them probably were. We don't know any of them. We don't trust them. The, the, who, who does John tell us to trust? Those who believe that Yahshua Christ came in the flesh and nobody else. And that statement, that's a little um, deeper than it appears on the surface, right? What's the significance of a man coming in the flesh and claiming to be Christ? What, what, what do we matter if we believe that or not? But if we understand that Yahshua is Yahweh, our Savior, as the name means, that God himself incarnated himself as a man, which is certainly what John himself believed, and that's the significance of the Messiah, 
Yahshua Christ. That's what it means in Isaiah chapter 43 and Daniel chapter 9 and wherever else he is mentioned or promises of him. It's always Yahweh himself promising, I will save you. Besides me, there is no other. I will not give my glory to another over and over and over again. The significance of Yahshua Christ coming in the flesh is Yahweh God incarnate as a man. Anybody who rejects that is not to be trusted by Christians. And that was one of the biggest of heresies, was the Trinity bullshit. That was one of the biggest heresies, because the apostles didn't believe in the Trinity. They believed that Christ was God, period. He wasn't God because he was some other God or some man that was eternal in the Godhead. No, they believed he was Yahweh. And that's the point of division right there, as it's explained by the apostles. And of course, you can't just honor him with your lips because a Jew could make that profession falsely, but you have to keep his commandments. If you believe that he's God, you better keep his commandments. So you can't, once you understand that you have to keep his commandments, you can't introduce these False doctrines, the, these grievously false doctrines, such as fornication, which, which you would know from the gospel of Christ is indeed the error of Balaam. So why would you repeat that? Why would you repeat that mistake? <laughs> because you're a interloper? It's the only reason why. Believing in Christ is more than just believing that Jesus came to save us. It, it's believing every word that he spoke, and he's the word of the Old Testament made flesh, so you have to believe all those words too. And, and then you have to actually put them to practice, and, and none of us are perfect. We're all going to fail at diverse times in one way or another, but what we endeavor as Christians to keep his commandments and never teach not to keep them. Because he teaching one of these little ones to break the least of these commandments is in deep trouble in the end. And believe him when he identifies the, the Antichrist, right? And next week, that, that's what we're getting into, right? Well, well, if you want to go there instead of the corrupted priesthood, then we could go from the ant. That might be even better is to reverse that order. I mean, we made a list. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought we was. It no, was, no. Uh, we can John go to John. Next. We can go to John next week. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's that. That might work out better, right? Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> we we can decide uh, on the day. Yeah, we could do John next week for real, and and then go to Malachi, who prophesied the corruption of the priesthood, and and that prophecy was fulfilled in first century Judea. Actually, it was fulfilled in first century B.C. Judea. <laughs> and, and even before that, because the Levites were... It's, it's the Levites' fault that Jerusalem ultimately became corrupt. I mean, there's no one else to blame but the priests. So yeah, we could reverse the order that we, we had agreed on last week, and it might turn out better that way, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thanks, Van Meville. Praise Yahweh.
and thank you and good night.